Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Bradley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Fortgang. Today, we'll be revisiting a June 2000 lecture from Israeli political philosopher Yoram Chazoni, entitled The Birth of the New Israel. Now, this Thursday, May the 9th, Israel will be celebrating its 71st Independence Day. That was the birth of the original Israel. Our topic, as the title implies, is the birth of the new Israel, an Israel rife with divisions over the character of a Jewish and democratic state. Chazoni attempts to distinguish between Zionists and post-Zionists. Zionists are those who founded the state, attempting to establish a sovereign Jewish state in British Mandate Palestine, and post-Zionists are primarily the new historians and new academics whose history of Israel is primarily concerned with the dispossession of Arabs who lived in the territory and potential negative ramifications of the founding of the Israeli state. Hazoni attempts to argue that divisions in Israel in the late 20th century and early 21st century are not really between Zionists and post-Zionists, but between those who advocate a increasingly mainstream view that Israel cannot continue to exist as a Jewish and democratic state with an appreciably Jewish character. With the resurgence of nationalist sentiment across the globe and opposition to it cropping up in the United States, Israel, Europe, and beyond, this lecture is timely as ever in exploring how a nationalist state can exist with an ethnic character, a religious character, while maintaining its democratic roots. So without further ado, here's Yoram Chazoni in June 2000 on the birth of the new Israel. What I'd like to do is to try to propose to you that the important cultural matters that are taking place, the sweeping changes that are taking place, and really this birth of a new Israel, one that is not so familiar to us, that this is in fact not a topic that can be correctly associated with a periphery. It's in fact a topic which we can only understand by reference to Israel's cultural mainstream. And when I speak about the mainstream, I'm speaking about a very large number, perhaps even a, uh, a majority, of those figures that with whom we're all familiar in academia, in literature, in the arts, and then slopping over into uh, the various areas in which public policy is affected and affected deeply by intellectuals in Israel. And the claim that I'm going to make this evening is the claim that in that cultural mainstream, far beyond individuals who are self-proclaimed post-Zionists, or people who are usually thought of as post-Zionists, there has been, over the last 5, 10, 15 years, a clear change, a clear distancing, clear break, if you will, with the most important political concept in the Israeli political tradition, the idea of a Jewish state. That is to say that the Israeli cultural mainstream is distancing itself in many ways has already drawn away from the idea of a Jewish state. Now, when I say Jewish state, I rush to emphasize that I'm not speaking in the way that that term is often used today. I'm not talking about a religious state or a Torah state or a halachic state. I'm talking about the original concept of a Jewish state, that which became was thrust upon the world stage with the publication of Theodore Herzl's pamphlet of that name and which became, by the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, became a consensus among the Jewish people and among friends of the Jews throughout the world. The Jewish state is a state, or was a state, was a concept of a state whose purpose is to serve the interests and the aspirations of the Jews as a people. Obviously, you can have all sorts of arguments within that definition, but what used to be a consensus, say, during the signing of Israel's Declaration of Independence, 
when every Jewish political party in Palestine, from the communists to the ultra-Orthodox Agudat Israel, when all of them signed the Declaration of Independence, which declares time and again that Israel is to be a Jewish state, they did have a unified and a cogent and a coherent idea in mind, and that was the idea of Israel as the state of the Jewish people, a state that would advance the interests and aspirations of that people. And it is that idea which has become uncomfortable and to many unbearable in recent years. In my book, I've devoted quite a few pages to a fairly extensive taxonomy of variations on this. I would like to begin just by giving you an example or two so that you can get a taste of what it is that I'm talking about. I'd like to begin by quoting David Grossman, who almost all of you know is one of Israel's leading novelists. More than that, he's perhaps next to uh, Meir Shalev, the most popular, uh, articulate, and I think in many ways the most sensitive of writers in uh, Israel's younger generation. And despite the fact that he is uh, he's well known as a member of the peace camp and uh, as a, an advocate of uh, exchanging territories for peace, David Grossman a number of years ago wrote an essay which I think in this context is of profound significance, in which he said that although it is true that Israel must give up certain territories in order to reach peace with its neighbors, that's not what's important. That's not really what's essential. The essential step that Israelis have to take is not a redeployment from territory, in the words of the Oslo Accords, which use the word redeployment, but rather what Grossman calls a redeployment in our souls. Here's the way that he describes this redeployment that he sees as necessary. The Jews living in Israel are now being asked not only to give up on geographical territories, we must also implement a redeployment or even a complete withdrawal from entire regions in our soul. Regions such as the purity of arms, that classic labor Zionist conception that the Jewish armed forces, you know, even though there might be mistakes, that the Jewish armed forces don't take up weapons except in the service of a just cause, such as being a precious people or a chosen people, slowly, over long years, we will discover that we are beginning to give them up. Giving up on power as a value. Uh, notice this is an extremely significant assertion in a country which was, in fact, more or less established after the Holocaust in order to empower the Jews. Giving up on power as a value. Giving up on the army itself as a value. Giving up on it's good to die for one's country. The legendary last words of the hero Joseph Trumpeldor Tel Chai, giving up on the best to the Air Force, the almost as uh, legendary words of Ezer Weizmann as he called upon the students to leave the universities in order to devote themselves to the dangerous task of establishing the first Jewish Air Force, giving up on Aharai, which is even when, when I was in basic training, uh, which is about 10 years ago, it was still the case that every uh, recruit into the Israeli army, every uh, young men and women would be taught. But uh, we were all taught that in other armies it may be the case that officers are willing to send their men and women out into battle in front of them, stand back and watch with field glasses to see what's going on. But in a Jewish army, every officer has to be willing to lead the charge. And if there's a bullet to be taken, the officer will take that bullet. That was the legendary meaning of the expression, Aharai, after me, which is a region of our soul that we must give up. And then Grossman concludes... Regarding all these, we will discover how we are refining a new existence for ourselves, one which is no longer drenched to the point of suffocation with the myth of our exile from the land or with the myth of Masada or with a one-dimensional lesson of the Holocaust. In other words, what Grossman is describing is not just another argument about this hill or that hill. Should we or shouldn't we give it up and to whom and when and in what way? He's describing something far broader and far deeper. 
because the state of Israel is something far broader and far deeper. The state of Israel isn't simply a place. The state of Israel is an idea, and it's an idea which draws its power and its attraction to Jews and to non-Jews the world over from, its, from what today is called from its narrative, what's today called the Zionist historical narrative, which is to say the story of the Jews the story of the Jewish people, against that backdrop of what Amos Oz, I think once so, so astutely called the great drama, Israel is really a, a place along this continuum in the great drama, the drama that began with the story of the nobility and the grandeur and the righteousness of the ancient Jewish kingdoms, or at least of some of the great men and women who lived in them, and then the destruction of the Jewish kingdoms, the brutal end of Jewish sovereignty at the hands of the Romans, the suffering over the course of the exile, finally culminating in the Zionist movement, which was conceived as being the, a kind of a, a just conclusion to history. It has to be obvious to all of us, as it is to David Grossman, that giving up on that great drama, giving up on that narrative, means giving up on the concept of what Israel is and what it means within the history of humanity. The critique of the of the essentials of Zionist ideology and the severing of our ties from its fundamental tenets did not begin at the end of the 1980s. That's to say, it didn't begin with the, Tom Segev and, and uh, Benny Morris and those who we refer to as new historians, but appeared as a consolidated and alternative point of view already in the first half of the 1970s. Why is that important? Because because that's when Bartal started writing. And so he quickly quotes himself from 1976, asserting that up until now, Israeli history has indeed been based on, quote, wishful thinking resulting from ideological and other motives. And then he concludes, the severing of the ties with Zionist historiography is an intellectual event of decisive importance in Israeli academia. Historical research is continuing to free itself from the story of Zionism designed by the generation of the founders. This is a quiet revolution that is systematically changing the building blocks of our picture of the past. And once again, Professor Bartal is not a post-Zionist. He's the mainstream. If he's not the mainstream, there is no mainstream. He simply is the cultural center, just as David Grossman is. There are many areas of Israel's public life, specifically many areas of Israeli government, many Israel's areas of Israeli public policy, which are central to that state's existence and which are nevertheless really not made by politicians. Let me give you a couple of examples. In 1994, a professor named Asa Kasher, who is also not known as a post-Zionist, was asked to uh, write a code of ethics for the Israeli Armed Forces, uh, and uh, he did so. He chaired a committee, an Armed Forces Committee, which wrote a code of ethics, which uh, uh, was then adopted by the Israeli Armed Forces and has, n at this point, been in place for six years. Every Israeli officer has to go through a course on this code of ethics, and he or she learns this code of ethics in order to learn how to judge, learn the values and principles according to which an Israeli officer takes his or her men or women into battle. And it's this code which is supposed to, according to the code itself and, the, and, and those who instruct, teach out of it, it's this code which is supposed to teach Israeli soldiers how to live both in and out of the army, in operations and outside of operations. Professor Kasher says that this code is the most sophisticated code of ethics of any army in the world, and, uh, and I'm inclined to believe him. In all of these values and principles, there isn't anything, any particularistic one, none of them, that refers even to anything that could be considered particularistically Jewish. That is to say, the code does talk about, as, as it should, about the obligation of every soldier to, to be willing to give up his life in order to 
defend the citizens and residents of Israel. And it speaks as it should about the willingness and the readiness to give up one's life in order to defend Israel as a democracy, as a democratic state. But it says nothing about Israel as a Jewish state. It doesn't mention the term Jewish state, just as it doesn't refer to the Jewish people, the Jewish tradition, Jewish values, uh, the land of Israel, anything that you could come up with that used to be a matter of consensus among Zionists, anything that you could come up with that you might want to teach a Jewish soldier about what he or she is giving up his or her life for, it's not there. Now, this is not yet the most practical thing in the world. Um, we haven't yet had a case, as far as I know of, where an Israeli soldier has said, as unfortunately I assume that sooner or later they will, when ordered to, for example, to lead an operation in, into Ethiopia, as, as the Israeli army did for 12 full years not so long ago, in order to rescue foreign Jews, how it is possible to justify on the basis of this incredibly sophisticated code of ethics, how one can justify the idea that one is taking men and women possibly to, to die for foreign Jews when there's no mention of the Jew Jewish people in this code. But there are, are additional examples that are even more pressing. Just this March, just uh, a few months ago, the Israeli Supreme Court, after what's really been years of throat clearing on the subject, finally, finally did as it had threatened to do in many previous decisions, finally took the opportunity uh, in a case called, uh, which is now known as the Katsir decision, to determine for the first time that a Jewish policy of the Israeli government, the Zionist policy, is unconstitutional because it in effect, or it's in effect unconstitutional because of the fact that it, what it does is it discriminates between Jews and non-Jews. The particular case that is in question is the decades-old labor Zionist policy of Jewish settlement, not in the West Bank or the Gaza or any place that controversial, not even on the Golan Heights. In this case, we're talking about Jewish settlement in the Galilee. And regarding Jewish settlement in the north of Israel, this was actually in the, uh, in the region just south of Galilee called the Triangle, regarding Jewish settlement within pre-1967, what people have sometimes called Israel proper. In this decision, the Israeli Supreme Court took it upon itself to give forth really a 29-page dissertation on the subject of equality as a basic value within Israeli law. Equality, says the court, is the general principle of all Israeli law. I believe that, uh, that the Chief Justice Aaron Barak, who penned this decision, was referring to all law in general, but in any case, certainly all Israeli law. And he says that all agree that it's forbidden under this general principle of the purpose of law to discriminate on the basis of religion or national background. National background in that, that's referring to uh, Jewish or Arab or Druze nationality. Now, obviously, for all of us who cherish Israel as a, as a liberal democratic regime, it's uncomfortable to, to be put in a position of having to in any way uh, distance or disagree with a, a statement like that. And the decision was a 4-1 decision, and Justice Kedmi, who wrote the, was the lone judge in the dissent, he too emphasized that obviously all of us believe in this principle of equality as a basic principle in Israeli society, but the difference between the dissent and the opinion of the majority is that in the dissent, Justice Kedmi said, that Israel is a liberal democratic state, but it's also a Jewish state. And there must be situations and circumstances where we can balance principles and, and, and concepts and values that are equally important, at least in certain cases, to equality, and that can, in effect, determine that in cases where Israel's survival as a Jewish and democratic state is in danger, we should be able to refer to Jewish principles, to Jewish values, to Israel as a Jewish state. It is extremely unclear what aspects, if any, of Israel's character as a Jewish state 
can possibly stand against this kind of reasoning. Finally, I'd like to just touch on one, uh, one last example. I'd like to, um, to briefly discuss the issue of the textbooks. Now, the textbooks are, as in the case of the Kasher Committee, uh, which wrote the Code of Ethics, and uh, the, uh, special non, the special committees that appoint the Supreme Court justices in Israel. The textbooks are also written by, uh, in the charge of committees. That is, they're largely what are called professional committees that are largely screened from political the involvement of politicians of any stripe. And if we look at the work of these committees uh, over the last uh, 15 years in Israel, then what we'll see is that there's been, in general, since 1985, a general revision of the Israeli public school curriculum, not, not in the religious schools, by the way, which for the most part continue to use the old curriculum, but in the secular public schools. There's been a revision of virtually every subject that has anything to do with Israel's identity as a Jewish state. I'm talking about history, of course, but also civics, uh, Bible, literature, uh, archaeology, almost everything that touches on anything Jewish. And I'd like to focus on the middle school history curriculum only because that's one, that's one area in which we've finally, after eight years, gotten to see the res from beginning to end the results of the entire process. We can actually see, we can actually hold in our hands the, you know, the, the fruits of what it is that happens when these committees sit down to revise the curriculum. Now, just a couple of words of background. Uh, the Israeli history curriculum in the middle schools used to look pretty much like what you would expect a Jewish history curriculum to look like. As it's, it's a, uh, a four -year, it was a four-year curriculum, last revised in 1975, that uh, began in sixth grade and ended in ninth grade. In sixth, and when you looked at it, it was very clear that what is involved is a Jewish history. It's, it's Jewish history. There was plenty, a great deal of material about non-Jewish peoples that the Jews encountered, the Greeks and the Romans, the Americans, the Germans, and so forth. But it was clearly a Jewish history. It was the history, it was, if you will, it was Amos Oz's great drama for sixth through ninth graders. You began in sixth grade with the first half of sixth grade devoted to studying the Bible, not as a religious text, not as a literary text, but, but as, a, as a historical document. Because obviously, if, or I think it's obvious that if you don't, if you don't know about the, the biblical history, then it sort of raises a question about why there should be a Jewish state in the middle of the Middle East at all. And from there, it went through the, the sweep of, uh, of Jewish history, finally reaching its uh, Zionist pinnacle uh, with David Ben-Gurion in 1948 in some schools. Some schools went up to 1967. And the first thing that you notice when you take a look at the new curriculum is that that curriculum doesn't really appear to be a Jewish history anymore. Many have tried to turn what I'm telling you now into kind of a partisan issue. And, and uh, I, I think that that is really impossible to do once you know the facts. That is, in 1991, the committee that was commissioned to revise the middle school history curriculum was commissioned by Likud government. That committee sat and worked for four years, and in 1995, it, it came up with its, its conclusions. That is, it published a new curriculum, and that new curriculum was published under the labor government. There was virtually no public discussion of it, and so the professors and the bureaucrats at the Ministry of Education went back to work writing the textbooks, and they worked for another four years, mostly during a Likud government. And finally, last year, 1999, came out with this book, Olam Shel Tmurot, A World of Changes. And this book is, I think it's fair to say, the work of, of uh, all governments, of all parties in Israel. Now, this book, as I was saying, this book is 
the first thing you notice when you look at it is that it basically doesn't appear to be Jewish history. In fact, people have said to me, well, that's, that's not a Jewish history textbook. What are you talking about? Which is, which is, of course, the point. I mean, this is the history of the 20th century. And you see on the cover Michal Gorbachev, Sigmund Freud. Uh, there there is uh, Yitzhak Rabin shaking hands with King Hussein and, uh, and uh, Bill Clinton made it in there as well. And, uh, and then there's the, to round out the picture, the Marx Brothers, the Beatles. I mean, it, it doesn't look like a Jewish history book. And in, in fact, strictly speaking, in terms of numbers, it, it, it really isn't anymore. The old textbooks were over 60% devoted I'm referring to the, the ones that deal with the 20th century, over 60% devoted to subjects, uh, to the subjects of Zionism, the Holocaust, the State of Israel, uh, whereas this book ha devotes only 30% of its uh, text to Zionism, the Holocaust, and the State of Israel. But the real story isn't in the numbers, because obviously you could tell a very Zionist story with that 30% if that's what you intended to do. But you don't have to read very far in, into it before you reach what I consider to be a, a really rather shocking omission. And that is when you start to get to the topic of the, of the Jewish resistance to the British, that is the, the Jewish military operations or underground operations, both of the Palmach and the Haganah on the one hand and of the Etzel and the Lehi on the other hand, which were the prelude to uh, the establishment of Israel, material which, which took up 21 pages in the old textbooks, you find that that entire heroic chapter of Israel's history is dispensed with in four words. And those four words are, and in addition, there are also violent actions. And this is um, not simply a slip of the pen. It's actually it's part of a, a general pattern within this textbook uh, that, um, of downplaying anything that could be considered to be heroic. So that, for example, uh, Jewish resistance during the Holocaust, which, had, which was the subject of seven pages in the old textbooks, doesn't exist at all. That is to say, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising isn't mentioned in this textbook, even though the Warsaw Ghetto is. But let's go on. The, uh, using arrows jutting into pre-67 map of Israel showed the invasion routes of the five Arab armies the day after Ben-Gurion declared independence and thus graphically demonstrated what it meant to be under siege and on the verge of destruction. But if you look at this book, then what you'll see is that these arrows point the opposite direction. That is to say, this is not a map of the Arab armies invading Israel. This is a map of the Arab refugees who were expelled or fled from Israel during the war. Similarly, when you get to the first six weeks of the war, that even the new historians, most of the new historians still agree that the, at least the first six weeks of the war Israel really was in a touch-and-go life-and-death struggle, and it really was possible that the Jews could have been wiped out. And yet that, too, is reduced to a single bland sentence here with the heroism gone. Now I've turned the page again. Now I'm on the last page. This is it. This is the end of the discussion of Israel's war of independence. And by now, you can all start asking yourselves, well, wait a second. What about the pictures? I mean, even if you haven't seen the textbooks, you could probably invent for yourselves what the pictures must have been. And, and they were what you think they were. There was a picture of David Ben-Gurion declaring independence, a picture of Ben-Gurion looking stern and worried. And, of course, battle shots, uh, the nighttime rocket bombardment of Jerusalem, uh, a picture, a photograph of the humiliating s Jewish surrender uh, of the old uh, Jewish quarter in Jerusalem to the Jordanian Legion, a picture of, of Kibbutz Ramat Rachel bombed out, and so forth and so on. But here in this book, all these pictures are gone. In this book... There's only one photograph that 
represents the War of Independence, and that's a picture of a young woman teaching Arabic to school children, and the caption reads, Palestinian refugee children in Jordan, 1949. Now, this is not the only textbook in Israel. There are others, but this textbook is the only one that was written by the Ministry of Education. This is the only one that was written by the pedagogical wing of the Ministry of Education and sports its, its official symbol. This is the only one that really shows you who's running the show and what signals they're sending and where they're going. And this book is, I mean, it's, it's the same all the way through. Uh, when you get to the Six-Day War, uh, it appears as though Israel precipitated the war. There's no mention of the blockade of the Straits of uh, Tehran, the blockade of Eilat, or the Syrian efforts to divert the headwaters of the Jordan. There's no mention of the, the calls to destroy Israel. In other words, everything that, that we generally associate with the story of the Six-Day War and how it happened isn't here anymore. Now, this isn't the only book, and there are other books. And this isn't the only, but this isn't the only policy. There are other policies. It's not the only committee. There are plenty of committees. But what I submit to you for you to think about is that in Israel today, it's not the few post-Zionists who have created what I consider to be a very significant problem, one that is perhaps even life-threatening to Israel. It's the mainstream. The Bradley Lectures, sponsored by the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation, were given for over a quarter century at AEI, beginning in September 1989. I and AEI senior fellow Carlin Bowman hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast and click the link in the description below to watch the full lecture. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.